0: Now, it seems that the fish uh, had some difficulty articulating their rights and filling out the requisite uh, paperwork and filing it, and, and so they've hired an attorney. And uh, he says, we have a duty to protect those rights, says their lawyer. We're sort of like their trustee, and they're our minors, end of quote. Now, I was thinking that since the uh, the electricity in question is being produced by water power, which therefore doesn't have emissions, one wonders how their argument is relevant or really helps their case. I mean, if I were a fish, I think I'd stick with the um, egress and regress argument over the dams myself. But. And in fact, some have actually made that argument for the water's rights. Now, I don't mean water rights, like we're dealing with in Idaho, you know, with the uh, adjudication, and that has to do with people, you know, people's rights about which water gets used by whom first and so forth like that. No, but by the rights of the water itself. The river's nature rights, so to speak, to flow freely, and um, actually, there are some rivers, and there are some places in the world today that have been given such rights by their governments, you know, in those area, and in fact, they attempted to do that in Florida, get it into the uh, Florida Constitution to protect, you know, give certain bodies of water rights, but it didn't, it didn't make it in Florida, um, and then I was thinking there's that uh, famous or infamous quote, uh, uh, depending on how you look at it, by Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, who said, quote, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, end quote. So according to, you know, what what they're saying, what uh, Newkirk and the fish and so forth are saying is that fish and rats, and people are all pretty much equivalent. That's what they say, you know, I'm I'm not so sure, but, you know, why don't we see what God says? Good idea, right? See what the Creator says instead of the creature. Let's see what God says. So in Psalm 8, it says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, <clears throat> what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So our outline, um, next slide please. Again, scored again with, uh, yeah, I don't know, a alliterated outline. Um, Design, dignity and dominion. Now, the dominant theme of psalm, uh, of Psalm eight is man's elevated place in the creation of the universe. However, it's important to note that ultimately, it's about God. I mean, because you see the psalm with the, the first and the last verse, the psalm is bookended with praise to God for his glory. And His Majesty. And so the creation of the universe in general and of man specifically are evidences. They're signposts that point to God's awesome power and creativity. So, design, dignity, dominion. Next slide, please. God is the designer, our first point. God is the designer. He is the creator. His power is matchless. He has more power than anything else, and not just more power, but power of a completely different kind, power greater in kind as well as in amount. I mean, we think of things with power, whether it's machines uh, for um, production or whether machines of war, that have a lot of power. We think of the power of the wind and what it can do for good or for bad. You think of the power of water, hydraulic power, a wave, a whole city's gone. Or you see uh, a great flood and then it's draining out and boom, you've got the Grand Canyon. Water power, it's amazing. You think of the sun and how much energy and, and it's been going on for thousands of years. All that energy and of all these other sons, greater sons, and so much power and energy. But God's power is not only of a higher order, but a different kind. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, and God spoke, and the universe came to being. Uh, as the um, theologians call it, ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he created this entire universe. Now the people, we are the crown of God's creation and we are naturally creative. But we use stuff that already is. We can't, no matter how smart or powerful or whatever we are, we can't create one little atom out of nothing. But God created all this from nothing. So a higher and a greater power and a different kind of power that God is the designer and the creator. And God created not only the vast universe, but the tiny little atomic and subatomic particles that make that all up. And he created the laws that govern how all those things work. So people have a special place in his creation. And scientists have discovered that the universe is exquisitely designed to support organic life and h- human life here on this little planet, Earth. And there's all kinds of factors. The force of gravity has to be just so for us to, to live. The strong and the, the weak nuclear forces have to be exactly right. The expansion rate of the universe if it were a little faster, a little slower, bad things would happen, and we wouldn't be able to be here. Exquisitely designed, and so even some of the atheistic um, scientists, philosophers—I can't remember who said it—but he was talking about the universe, and he said he wondered, "Quote: It seems like it was waiting for us." End quote. Uh, hello, <laughs> you know, God said that, you know, and but, they're, he, they're, but it boggles their mind, you know, just, wow, there's this design, I don't know how it just happened, but you know, it, it must have. So God is the designer, and people are the designed. We are the created, we are the creatures. And one thing, we are designed to steward the rest of the earthly creation, but we'll get to more on that later. That'll be another point. But uh, uh, Warren Wiersbe said, God created earth for our, quote, for our enjoyment and employment, end quote. Then people are designed as well um, for worship is one of the things we see in here. We are designed for worship. And David models it in his psalm. You know, we talked about the first and the last verse. You know, bookending this thing praises to God for His greatness. God is the beginning and the end of all true worship. And not only individually David, but by its place in the Bible. This in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was the the worship book, the uh, the worship manual. For the, for God's people, and so by being included in there, uh, the psalm invites others to join in this worship. So it wasn't just David's pri- private worship, but it's included in the psalms because it was part of corporate worship that we are being called to with uh, with this psalm. So we are designed for worship. C.S. Lewis, the the great uh, British writer and uh, theologian apologist saw this as one of the evidences of the existence of God. We are created. He said, we, we see design. We are created and designed with certain needs, with certain desires, with certain appetites. And then we acknowledge that there are things that correspond to those needs and those appetites. And so there's this this design, there's the need, and there's... Uh, a corresponding thing to fulfill that. And he points out, for example, that we experience hunger and we observe that there is food to meet that need, to satisfy that appetite. We experience thirst and then we see, well, there's water that can quench that thirst, that can meet that need. And he said, we also have this need for worship. We all, and he said, so it makes complete sense that there is something corresponding to that need, and that's God. That's pointing to a God as that corresponding thing to meet that need for worship. And we have this innate desire and need to worship. We all do it. And it's not a matter of if we are going to worship, it's a matter of what and whom we are going to worship. And this is evident even in kids, and it alludes to that in, in verse 2. Um, let's go ahead and put it the next. Uh, in, in Corinthians, Paul Paul said, uh, he was talking about the, the simplicity of the gospel and all the, you know, really smart people are kind of like, oh yeah, I don't know, that doesn't make sense. But he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And... Um, A study several years ago, kids from all over the world, all cultures, all different countries, they all naturally believe in God. And um, so contrary to the atheists saying you are indoctrinating those kids, no, they have to be indoctrinated not to believe in God, because that's naturally what kids do. And in in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength, because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger so you know, God is so great that even the praise of infants and toddlers can shut the mouths of God's naysayers and Jesus uh, paraphrases this verse in um, an incident recorded in Matthew let's go ahead and put up the next slide In 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 the context here, he's um, the the children are praising him, oh son, you know as uh, Messiah, and um, and when he you know he cleared the temple, the children are praising him, the religious leaders are going, shut him up, stop that, stop that, and Jesus paraphrases um, verse two of of this psalm, and it says when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. The, the leaders were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read the Bible? <laughs> to the religious leader, I'm sure like that. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise. And uh, the religious leaders, I'm, you know, were already rather upset, and now they're likely really enraged, because uh, this is talking about praise to God, and Jesus is accepting praise due to God, and not only that, in the context, because your foes still the enemy, you know, he's kind of implying the religious leaders are the enemies of God. So, yeah, that didn't win any brownie points, I'm sure, for Jesus, uh, with the religious leaders anyway the kids were pretty crazy about him but uh so we have design and we have uh dignity is uh the next so design and dignity you know god is an amazing awesome really big god and he created a really big awe inspiring universe that it's just hard to grasp, it boggles my mind. Back a long time ago, in the 70s, when I was in seminary, Voyager 2 was launched. A little over three years ago, it left our solar system and entered interstellar space. I think that was the first time for a man-made craft. It was traveling for over 41 years at approximately 35,000 miles per hour, traveling some 11 billion miles and it just left our small solar system in one little galaxy in a vast universe. And God was already there. He was already there. And who knows how many, if it travels for thousands or more years and gets to another galaxy, God is going to be already there. Because with a word, he made it all. With a word, he made it all. And so we seem so tiny and so insignificant when we consider that. And fragile. And fragile. A tiny little bit of RNA and we're gone. We seem so tiny, insignificant, and fragile in this vast universe. And so we wonder with David, in verses three and four, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And then we go on and, and marvel in, in verse five. And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory. An honor. the The word translated "heavenly beings" um, is Elohim in the Hebrew. Uh, literally, it's the gods. El or Eloah are generic names for words for God. Elohim is the plural, the gods. And sometimes in scriptures, it's it's translating the gods when it's talking about like pagan deities or stuff sometimes it's used of god himself um the one true god it uses the the plural to communicate the you know refer to the one true god in the uh, septuagint and the vulgate that's the old uh, greek and the slightly less old latin versions this is translated angels a little lower than angels so the gods the the heavenly being is a good generic translation of that. But the point is, whichever way you translate it, the point is that we are lower than God and we're higher than the animals. We're lower than God, higher than the animals. We're in between. We're, people are a unique, special creation of God. And the weird thing is that the modern secular world has got it wrong both ways, at the same time. We are both just animals, as per Darwin and his uh, philosophical progeny that still continue, but we play God. We play God. We are going to create our own reality. So they've got it wrong both ways at the same time. We're just animals, but we play God rather than acknowledging people as unique creatures between God and animals and other parts of creation. Next slide, please. Genesis says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. The the, um, theologians call that the imago dei, the image of God, and it has huge implications because it means that human beings have inherent dignity, although it is derivative glory. We reflect God's glory because we bear His image, And we have value whether we're handsome or homely, whether we're athletic or klutzy or disabled. We have value whether we are young or old, whether one is young enough to still be in the womb or one is getting old and losing some productivity and um, capacity. I was on Facebook the other day, and I was, um, you know, up at the top, it says, people you may know, and I was kind of scrolling through there. It was like, why do they keep showing me all these pictures of all these old people? And and then I realized they were my classmates. (laughs) Like, what happened to them? Then I went and looked in the mirror, and I saw what happened, but... But no matter how old, we still have that inherent value because we still bear the image of God. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're smart or slow or mentally handicapped, regardless of how useful we are to someone else, we have value because God himself says so. And our post-modern society does not understand God, they do not understand man, and so they do not understand dignity. Dignity has been redefined or perhaps undefined and misappropriated. And somebody is sick or they're, they're depressed and they're killed and it's called death with dignity. Someone gets pregnant and they kill the babies because of dignity somehow. And another thing we hear so much about is that is misconstrued as human rights. And there's a storm assailing our nation and our world, and especially since the 60s, I think. And I'm not talking about the, the straight winds that hit the plains last year and caused destruction, the tornadoes that hit, um, it was in Kentucky and several other states, the hurricanes that plagued the southeast. I'm not talking about that. I'm speaking about the winds of change that have blown human rights off its foundation and the superstructure is falling apart. This idea of rights that we have, that we take for granted, is really relatively rare and modern. Most times they didn't have that kind of thing. Most places even today you won't find that. The rights are tentatively given by government and taken at will this idea of unalienable rights in our Declaration of Independence are rights not given or taken by government, but given by God and to be acknowledged and protected by government are founded in a biblical worldview. Because people bear the imago dei and have inherent value, we are not to be used only as means to an end. But given the the right to life, to liberty, property, and so forth, but today there are many that are trying to um, that are trying to cut off the proverbial branch they're standing on. People want rights; they take them for granted, but they don't want God, and they don't want the Bible for sure, because those things are bad. That's religion, and religion, you know, it's bad and bigoted and hateful and so forth. So they, they're cutting off that proverbial branch they're standing on, I mean, and it makes no sense. Um, for example, that's like saying, well, we, we all want cars, right? We should all have cars. Cars are good, but we certainly don't want car manufacturers. They're bad. They're capitalists, you know, that kind of thing. It doesn't make any sense. And the same thing with these rights that are given by God. We try to cut off, we don't want religion, we don't want God. But that's where the idea of real, um, these kind of human rights come from. The traditional understanding of freedom has given way to this uh, redefinition and and become some kind of radical autonomy where people want rights without the foundation. They want to be gods. They want to decide whatever rights they want. They make up or discover new so-called rights with no basis outside of themselves, completely subjective. But what if one's fabricated, discovered rights based only on your own subjective things? What if those conflict with somebody else's rights that they feel? What happens then? Well, we know what happens then. If you've studied history or you've looked around, what happens? Might makes right who's ever more powerful, has the biggest guns, whatever, their, their idea, their reality prevails, and freedom is gone. It's gone. So, religious freedom. Our founders understood this, how important that was. It's no accident that religious liberty is included in the Bill of Rights. Which one? One, yep, First Amendment, even. And yet it's under attack today, so often newly fabricated, concocted so-called rights, particularly related to radical sexual autonomy, trump religious liberty. Now, the true dignity of man is based on the Imago Dei. It's not just some abstract theological concept out there just for the theologians to discuss and test their students on. But uh, it has implications that are quite relevant for life here and now in this cultural moment. Design, dignity, dominion. We're designed by God, He's the designer, we're the designed. We have dignity because God created us in His image and we reflect His glory. And dominion. Next slide. You have given him dominion, it says in verse 6, over the works of your hands you've put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We've been given dominion. You know, we we saw in verse 1 and verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And just as God has intrinsic, inherent glory, and he crowns us with glory and honor by our being created in his image and our reflecting his glory, so our dominion is derived from him. O Lord, our Lord. Now, if uh, a lot of our versions, you'll notice the first Lord is the um l- small uppercase letters, Pastor Todd's pointed that out to us before. that means in in the Hebrew that's Yahweh, that's his um, his name, the Lord, and then our Lord Adonai, Lord, Master, Yahweh, Lord, O Lord, our Lord, our master. The theological term is sovereign. He is our sovereign and he is sovereign. O Lord, our Lord. God has ultimate dominion over everything and everyone, including us. Next slide. In Matthew 22, uh, 17 and following, Matthew records an incident where Jesus is being set up by the religious leaders. They're trying to get him into trouble with the government and or his followers and trying to turn him against them. So they're tricking him with a question about taxes. And they were pretty touchy about that, maybe even more so than we are today. They weren't keen on how they Tax money was being spent either, I don't think. And so they say, tell us, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness An inscription is this. And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. They left without asking the follow-up question. What are the things that are Caesar's? The coin. What are the things that are God's? They didn't ask the follow-up question. What are the things that are God's? Everything, especially us. We bear his likeness. His image is stamped on us, just like that image of Caesar was stamped on that coin. God's image is imprinted on us, and we are to give ourselves to God. God is sovereign. He has made us the crown of creation and he's given us dominion over the rest of the creation. But we have to remember, we keep in mind that we are sub-regents under God's authority. We are to steward creation for him. To use it for his glory. So we have design, dignity, dominion. God's a designer; we're the designed, designed for worship. We have dignity because we bear His image. We have dominion as sub-regents under God. But in closing, um, Genesis one said God created. Everything and it was good. He finished up things with us, it was very good. We look around and some things are not so good now, are they? What's gone wrong? Things are not good, not everything now. What's gone wrong? We as a race sinned, we rebelled against God, and as rulers of the rest of the creation, there have been very severe consequences. Not only for us, but also for the whole earth. And there's nothing like a a global pandemic and a bunch of natural disasters to remind us of that, is there? As individuals, and so there were consequences. And As individuals, those uh, good God-given things that um, C.S. Lewis talked about, they've kind of gotten messed up. The good God given desires have been corrupted or led to inordinate stuff. We have hunger, it's a legitimate thing, but then sometimes it leads to gluttony. We have thirst, but it's twisted and sometimes leads to drunkenness. We have um, legitimate sexual desires for the marriage bonding, and um, it's warped and leads to immorality. And then that we're made for worship, we're made for worship, but then it gets twisted and leads to idolatry. And so, you know, on an individual level, that, you know, that you see those bad consequences. On a corporate level as well, the, the, um, the cultural commission founders when we do that, um, you know, the, the great commission uh, go and make disciples of all the nations. Way back in Genesis, we have the cultural commission um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule it. Um, that's gotten messed up because we have messed up flawed individuals. You know, and the idea was that you have these, uh, the, the people and you have m- marriage and then you, they that glorifies God and you create families that glorify God and those families are the building blocks of societies that glorify God. Now that's kind of messed up. So the on the individual level, things get messed up. So on the corporate level, um, you know, flawed individuals lead to messed up families which lead to corrupt societies that are falling apart with flawed ideas of dignity and rights and so forth so we have um, yeah the fall it's called the fall and it has alliterated consequences too disease, disaster, death, destruction, decay but God. Praise the Lord for his mercy and his grace. The sovereign creator broke into his broken creation in the person of Jesus. And he entered into our suffering and he paid the price of our broken relationship with God. And he broke the power of sin and death. And so, not only made it possible for us to be redeemed and restored to a right relationship with God but one day he will restore all things. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, it says he'll make all things new. He's preparing a new heavens and a new earth. So we have design, dignity, dominion. But in the conclusion here, there's one more D. Next slide, please. destiny. We all have one. We all have one. All people have sinned and are separated from God. And if you die in that state, that will be your eternal state, separated from God. But he loves us, and he has made a way to be right with him, but it's on His terms, only on His terms. It's only Jesus. It's only through Jesus because He is the only one who has or could do it. He is the only God-man that could restore the broken relationship between God and man. He's the only one. So it's your decision, but it's on God's terms. It's only Jesus. Believe and receive Trust Jesus, work on the cross for you and follow him. And your destiny is a right relationship with God into eternity, and that's heaven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you for making us for relationship with you, making us to have that loving relationship with you Made in your image with dignity, giving us work to do, a stewardship, dominion of creation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and the offer of forgiveness and hope that we can have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, remember you are created in the image of God. You are precious and you are valued. And so is your neighbor. So remember to reflect God's glory this week in all that you do. Amen.